The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Put there. When I started this week, um, it was really kind of put on my heart that I would be teaching on the subject of hardship. Now, I, I was taught that it, it's not a good idea to just start out with a sermon of pick a subject and then find all your scriptures to fit it. That's just generally bad practice. So I, I decided that I was going to wait to decide what my topic was going to be until God gave me for sure the scripture that he wanted me to preach from. So as I prayed and I meditated, eventually I settled on Hebrews chapter 12. Now, when I, when I started in on Hebrews chapter 12, I thought, okay, Hebrews chapter 12, there's a ton of good content in there. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage. I'll start with that. And as the time went on and on and on, I realized more and more that Hebrews chapter 12 was a whole series of messages, not just one. So then I narrowed it down and said, okay, let's just do Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And as I studied and studied and studied, I learned that verses 1 through 12 is also a whole series of sermons that could not possibly be packed into one sermon. So then as I studied more, I decided, okay, well, what if I can just, I can just pack it down to verses maybe 1 through 7? You know, as a, as a fairly inexperienced pastor, I don't want to limit myself. <laughs> I want to make sure there's plenty of good content. I've got to go a good two hours this morning. So I've I got to make sure there's plenty to say. So as I prayed and I thought and I meditated more, eventually I really settled on the scriptures, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Now, to me, that was kind of an intimidating thing, four verses that just doesn't seem like much. As I started reading and really diving into these verses, I realized how much is really in these verses. This is an amazingly compact section of scripture that includes as much advice for our daily lives as we could possibly imagine. As I started reading through this more and more and more, as so often I found that God was not giving me this message for you. God was giving me this message for me. And really realizing how much that this was going to really weigh on my heart, I realized this had to be the message that God was giving me to speak to you this morning. So as I preach this this morning, please do not take it as a young kid telling you what to do. Please take it as somebody telling you what he's learning in his own life, something that I hope would apply to yours. The more and more I study this, the more and more I realize that whether you're 5, 50, or 80, this applies. So I want to go ahead and start off by just reading the scripture. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to be reading out of the ESV. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our own eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding all its shame. Now he is seated in a place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. After all, you have not yet given your lives in struggle against sin. As I started realizing how much this was a message for my own heart, um, it was actually kind of a stressful week for me, and I think my wife would probably agree that I was not exactly a pleasant peach this week because I was trying to process this message that God had given me and I realized how much it should convict my own life and how much it wasn't convicting my own life. And as I start out with this first verse... Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, that one sentence there just got me from the very, very beginning. We are surrounded by people watching us. People are looking at the way we live our lives. Now, as missionaries and, and full-time Christian workers, we're, we're kind of in a unique place where we kind of do this as a profession, but really... Let's take us out of that context altogether. As Christians, this is where God has put us, being watched by other people. Now, this is not something that says, you know, there's a couple of people around you that are going to take in your life and they're going to kind of decide what they do or don't want to do. 
This is saying there is a huge crowd of witnesses. There is a lot of people watching how we conduct ourselves. There's a lot of people watching our attitudes, the way that we live our lives. One of the important concepts from this, I think, is that we don't get to choose who those people are. A lot of times we feel like, well, God, I didn't really, I didn't really choose this. This doesn't really apply to me because I didn't really want to be here. I didn't really want this crowd of witnesses. It doesn't say anything here about a choice. It doesn't say if you are surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses. It says you are surrounded by a huge crowd of witnesses. As a Christian, when you start down that walk of life, you have taken on the responsibility of being an ambassador for Christ. That is the quest that you've been given. Now, given this situation, we have, the way I see it, two choices. And I'm guilty in my life of probably the not-so-great one more times than not. And that because we don't get to choose who these witnesses are, we do get to choose whether we acknowledge that they exist or not. We do get to choose whether we're actually going to see them there. This reminded me uh, when, when our son was much younger, about a year old, um, yeah, probably even less than that actually, he, he really, really got it to the point where he could play peekaboo on his own. You know, it's, it's kind of this fun game, you know, in Thai they say ja in, in English, I don't know, at least in America, I don't know about in other Western countries, they say peekaboo. And it's this game of hide-and-go-seek, except you're right there with the other person. Okay? They haven't gone anywhere. They haven't disappeared. And what this made me realize is how often there's this huge crowd of witnesses around us and we just go, I can't see you, so you don't exist. But they're still there. Just because you put your hands over your eyes does not change the fact that these people are watching you. You have the choice to either put your hands over the eye, your eyes and pretend that they're not there or engage the fact that they are there and do something about it. It makes you look kind of silly when you're playing with a one-year-old and you're playing peekaboo and you're pretending that you're not there. They put their hands over their eyes. As far as they're concerned, you don't exist. And it's silly. It's childish. It's immature. There's nothing adult about that decision. <laughs> There's nothing glorifying to God about ignoring the witnesses he, put, he puts in your life. We have the choice to play peekaboo or we have the choice to acknowledge that God has put these people in our lives so that we can engage with them, talk with them, and be a good witness for them. Now, another thing that I think it's important to point out is just because we pretend that the people aren't there and we convince ourselves that we don't have this responsibility does not change the fact that you are there, and in fact it makes you a liability in the cause if you don't acknowledge it. And, and I don't know about you, but there's been a lot of times in my life where I felt like a liability to God. Somebody that I really... I, if I were him, I wouldn't put me in that position. I'm a liability. I'm somebody that could make mistakes. I can trip, I can stumble, I can mess up, I can hurt people. I'm a liability. In the scriptures, it clearly marks out that we have been empowered, equipped by the Holy Spirit to do His ministry. We are not a liability because God will not allow us to be a liability if we engage people and do His ministry in a way that He has told us we should do it. After that, if that first blow doesn't get you of whether you like it or not, there's people watching you. The second part says... Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. To me, this just looks like excess baggage. The excess baggage I've brought into my life, into my ministry, into my marriage, into my relationships, into my relationships with my kids. This is excess baggage. This is the things that you have brought in, the things you are responsible for. C.S. Lewis said about pride, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you can't see something that's above you. In Psalms, it talks about the proud as the wicked are too proud to seek God. They seem to think that God is dead. In Matthew, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who are the poor in spirit? It's the people that know that they are spiritually bankrupt. It's the people that know that they can't do it. Those are the poor in spirit. Those are the people that will inherit the kingdom of God. 
we have baggage. Oftentimes we know it's there. Sometimes we don't know it's there. Sometimes it hasn't been revealed to us yet. Sometimes we haven't had a friend or brother come alongside us and say, hey, look, you've got this baggage. Unfortunately, it almost always comes down to pride. The fact that we think we can do it without God or in spite of God or alongside of God and have him help us every once in a while. That's not the case. If that's the thought process you go through, you truly don't believe who God really is in his deep character. God can and will produce amazing things through you if you allow him to do so. But if you try and do it on your own, he can't work through you. He chooses not to because his character will not allow it. He needs you because of his character, because of his choice to accept him. Now, all things aside, is God divine and amazing and could do whatever he wants? Yes, but he chooses not to in these cases because that's not teaching, that's not learning. As a parent, if your child never picks up their room, are you doing them a favor by picking it up for them until they're 18 years old? No. Because when they turn 18 and you send them off to college or wherever they're going and you go to visit them the first time in their dorm, two things are going to happen. Either A, their whole dorm will be rotted, or B, their roommate will be either dead or moved out. They need to be taught. They need to go through experiences. They need to learn. God intends this for our lives. He intends for us to learn from what we do. Another thing that I think is, is really important in this, in, in the ESV it says, that so easily trips us up. In other, in other translations it says, surrounds us or thwarts us, um, competes with us. Those things, it's, it's this idea that our own sin... Our own making is the thing that is competing against us. We are competing against ourselves. We have brought in this sin, and by not choosing to deal with it, we are choosing to compete, to handicap ourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but that's kind of a new way of looking at sin. It's not so um, (laughs) self-loathing. It's more a way of, you do actually have some ability, some free will to choose the way that God is going to work through you by the way that you handle your sin, by the way that you deal with it. Another thing that I love um, to look at there is the let us part. He didn't say, so you. He didn't say, or I will. He said, let us. Let us, as a community, as a body of believers, as in relationship with Christ, let us work together to strip off all things that weigh us down, that compete against us, that thwart us. We as a community are supposed to act in community. And we in community with Christ are supposed to act in community with Christ. This is not a one-man show. It never has been. As soon as you take on Jesus as your Savior, it stops becoming your one-man show and becomes His. And you just get to be part of it. It's for us to deal with. Why are we competing against ourselves? It's clear in Scripture. If we know the truth, why do we do it? Well, it comes down to the human condition. It comes down to unbelief. It comes down to those parts of theology that tell us that we are fallen human beings and cannot do this without Christ. The next verse, or the next part of that verse, um, just continues to pile on. For me what was a very convicting, we haven't even made it through the first verse yet, a very convicting set of phrases. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. The reason that this one got me is because for some reason that word endurance just just grabbed hold of me. And uh, after a while, I, re- I realized I should probably, you know, when something like that happens, you know, it, when, when you're in elementary or middle school or high school, your teacher always says, if you don't know what a word means, what do you do? Get out a dictionary, look it up, right? So being that I do know what endurance means, but it just doesn't encompass what I thought it should mean in that verse, I decided, let's do a word study. So I got out all these things that tell us what these words mean, and uh I was extremely surprised to see what I found. 
Yes, endurance does mean to continue on, um, but it also means to act in patience in this particular Greek word and the way that it was used. The other thing that got me is it means to cheerfully or hopefully endure. To me, this was the real convicting part, (laughs) to cheerfully or hopefully endure. How many of you have worked with somebody that is that true martyr personality. I'm sure none of you are. <laughs> I'm sure none of you are. But how many of you have worked with a true martyr personality? That person that just was just a martyr for Jesus Christ in every day of their life and just woke up every day ready to be a martyr for what Jesus had put in their lives and was happy to tell the world how inconvenienced they were, how sacrificial their life was for Jesus. That is absolutely not biblical. We are to act in cheerful or hopeful obedience. With enthusiasm, we're supposed to be obedient with a good attitude. It's not just to be obedient, but to be obedient with a good attitude. I think it's really easy for us to leave this part off. And we can think of all sorts of excuses about how we're just man and we're human and, you know, we can't live to the standard that God has put before us. But I think we have to try. And I think if you have succumbed to just enduring with a bad attitude, you have not seen the true value in this verse. Now, in, in working on the mission field, that's, that's the, the other major part of my job, is I'm, I work with our Missions Foundation and I have the chance to work with lots of other mission organizations, mission, mission agencies, and uh, missionaries. And I really, really enjoy that work, but I cannot tell you how many times I've come across the most martyred and disgruntled, bitter missionaries. You just can't help but to ask yourself the question, why are you here? Does God intend for you to be bitter? Does God intend for you to feel the martyr? I don't think he does. When we endure, we need to do it with cheerful and hopefulness. We need to be patient. We need to continue on. Notice this also was not an if statement. This was a command. This was a mandate. This isn't circumstantial. We can all think of our own excuses. But God, you don't understand this person is impossible. I cannot endure them anymore. The circumstance that you have put me in, that you have put me in, is impossible and I cannot endure it, especially not with a good attitude. I can't handle this project anymore. I don't know how this budget is going to work out. My co-workers are miserable. All of these circumstantial things that we give to God and we say, see, this is my reason for not being cheerful. I'm going to do what you said. I'm going to be obedient, but I'm not going to do it cheerfully because you put me in this place where I have to work with these miserable people. Not, of course, that any of you, once again, would be in that place. But unfortunately, we find ourselves making excuses, whatever they might be. This is not an if statement. This is not a place where you can insert your own excuses and say, well, if you happen to have cushy ministry, where you happen to have all the budget you need, all the support you can possibly handle, all the people, all of the the people coming to Christ, the wonderful home churches, this wonderful vital excitement with your coworkers, all daily prayer meetings where you feel full and 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 spoken to by God. That'd be a wonderful circumstance, but unfortunately, I don't have that circumstance to you. <laughs> So we can't just claim that, well, if I have the right set of circumstances, then I will be cheerful and hopeful. How do you deal with other people that are not cheerful and hopeful? The same way, you endure cheerfully and hopefully. That's what you do. When you have to work with miserable people, that's how you deal with miserable people. The next part of it, the race God has set before us. This is, this is one part of it that I was, I don't know, I toiled about for a while because I thought, it, you know, it initially came, came to me as soon as I read this is, well, this doesn't sound like free will to me. This doesn't sound like my choosing to me. And as I searched more and more and more, I realized how little, the more you mature, your will to do things matters. The race 
that was set before us. Not the race that we chose, not the race that we're comfortable with, the race that was set before us. Now certainly I think some of us have different races to run, but if you're truly engaging the race that has been set before you, I don't think any of us have an easy race to run. I don't think in ministry those races exist. I think God is going to challenge you. I think he is going to sharpen you by putting you through turmoil and difficulty, by allowing those things to happen in your life. I think that is part of being a Christian. And I think that is part of how we glorify God in the end. We don't get to choose necessarily the race that is put before us. Romans 12.2 says, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. God's will for you is never going to be anything other than good and pleasing and perfect. Which leads us to one conclusion. If it is other than good and pleasing and perfect, it's your fault, not his. If that is God's will for your life, and you think it anything other than that, then you can't blame it on God. It comes down to a personal question about how am I really doing abiding in Christ? The more and more I, I read through this, the more and more I realized how much of this is truly dependent on our, on our abiding in Christ. And really, how little our circumstances should have anything to do with our joy in life. In fact, ultimately, when you've reached that point where you're truly engaging with God and you are abiding in Him, your circumstances should have nothing to do with the joy that you feel in life. The joy that you feel in life should be a direct, simple, and only output of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Not the circumstances you live in, not the support that you do or don't have, the ministry that is or isn't working. Your joy comes from your relationship with Christ. If your circumstances are influencing that, it's you letting him in there, not God. And you can't blame him for that. Hudson Taylor, who I'm sure many of you know something about. If you happen to be with OMF, he's kind of a godfather to the OMF crew, and, and rightly so, a man that really did blaze the trail for missions in China. He wrote these, these quotes in his journal. The Great Commission is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. And another one, I am no longer anxious about anything as I realize the Lord is able to carry out His will, and His will is mine. It makes no matter where He places me or how. That is rather for Him to consider than for me. For in the easiest positions, He must give me His grace. And in the most difficult, His grace is sufficient. Wise, wise words spoken from a very wise man. In that, He tells us that His circumstances mean nothing to Him. Back when this guy was a missionary, you took a boat, you got on it, there's a good chance you never saw your family again, you wrote back letters back and forth, old snail mail correspondence. I, I know my generation doesn't even know what that is, but that's when you had to write stuff down on paper and put it in the post office box. Now it's just email. I mean, he was dealing with real difficult circumstances, illness, a huge portion of his time. He was sick. He wrote several times that he didn't even have the ability, the health to be able to stand up. He was so sick. Only to sit there and bask in the glory of his creator. He came up against real circumstances. And he made it his life struggle to make sure those circumstances never determined what his joy would look like. That's something to be admired for sure. That's something to learn from. Is his grace sufficient in your life? Is it enough? Are you wanting? I know I am. I know when I first came out of the mission field, um, I was young, single, and uh, I handed my parents a box of support letters on my way out the door, went and got on the plane, just kind of, okay, God, make it happen for me. 
got here, lived for the first year on well, probably $300 a month, which as a single guy, you can, you can do, but then when you have to start paying for visas and work permits, and then you want to actually go home once every five years or so, um, you need to be able to have more than $300 a month. And uh, at that point in time, I also had three, four, th- four roommates um, just to keep the rent really, really low. I was working at Grace International School, and, uh, you know, it was kind of carefree. It was kind of, you know what, God... I'm single. I don't have any responsibilities. I can work at Grace and teach, and I enjoyed my job. You can do whatever you want. Then as life progressed, I met my wife. Well, I knew my wife. We got married. Um, I realized all of a sudden there's responsibility. Then the game changes. You can't just be willy-nilly for yourself because now you've got other people's lives involved as well. So then the stress came on. Then the stress came on of, of fundraising. Because if you're only making $300 when you're single, that doesn't automatically get bumped up when you get married. You've got to go do something about it. Then, in the first year of getting married, we had our son. We hadn't raised enough support for me yet to be single, let alone two people, let alone a third, and to have a baby. And I really started getting bitter about this. I really started to just let God have it and to just be upset. And every t- chance I had to tell somebody how miserable I was and how I needed money and they should give it to me, (laughs) I did. And I think after a while, they kind of got tired of hearing it. And so when I went back and talked to people, they didn't hear the joys that God was doing on the mission field through me. They heard how much God wasn't providing for me. That was the message I was sending. My own attitude, my lack of joy, was communicating an absolute untruth of what was happening on the mission field. Honestly, until I gave that up fully to God, and it was a good many months later, my poor wife had to endure me for many months, until I gave that up to God, that never changed. That circumstance did not change. We went to church after church after church. Everybody was happy to take a small little love offering and send us on our way. We met with people, individuals, good friends of mine, which were all happy to buy us lunch and send us on our way. And eventually I realized that if I'm not communicating what God's really doing on the mission field, what reason do they have to be involved in my life? I learned that my circumstances could not control the joy that I had. And that joy that I had was going to communicate what God was doing in my life. It's important that we have a good perspective on the ministry that we're doing and how much it is not our ministry, it isn't us doing it, we actually really don't have any control over it whatsoever. God has invited us to be part of it, and when he's ready to be done with us, he can do that. It really isn't about us and our tasks and our ministry. It's about him and our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I know that I'm just as guilty as anybody in thinking that I am higher or loftier because I'm a missionary, so that gets me out of this responsibility to have an effective relationship with Jesus Christ. That does not get us out of anything. If anything, it increases the number of people watching us and makes it so that we should have even a more solid relationship with Jesus Christ so that we are a bigger witness. It only increases the responsibility for us to be godly people, not decreases it. Another thing that I dealt with was bitterness. Are you bitter because you didn't get to choose the race that you're currently running? I'm not much of a runner myself. Like I said, Denise is off running a marathon right now. No desire whatsoever in life, period, to run a marathon. Not my thing. More of a soccer player. Not a runner. And I'm a goalie at that, so really not a runner. I have no desire to run that race. But the question bears, if God put me there to run that race, would I do it? And would I do it with a joyful and hopeful attitude? When I first got here, I wasn't really all that happy about running the race that God had put me in. But I learned over time that I have two choices, be miserable and a missionary or be joyful and a missionary. So I decided I was going to be joyful and a missionary. I had to get over that bitterness. That bitterness still creeps in every once in a while. It's easy for us to think, why doesn't anybody understand what we're doing I'm sharing my heart with these people and I I just want them to get on board. I want them to partner with us, but they just don't get it. God, why are you doing this to me? 
That's not for you to worry about. You worry about your attitude and your relationship with Jesus Christ, and he's going to take care of the rest. We cannot endure if we do not abide. Not possible. Biblical, theological bullet point. Cannot. Impossible. The world will eat us up. We cannot endure if we do not abide. Now, I have a lot of friends that are not Christians that I went to high school and college with that are currently going through life but I would not consider them joyfully enduring. They're not abiding. I look at their lives and I see just kind of waking up miserable, living life miserable, going to bed miserable. Hey, it's my birthday today. What a day. Tomorrow, miserable. It's, it's not a life that I ever want to go back to. I'm going to tell you about a man named Viktor Frankl. If you're, if you're German, you'll be able to pronounce that a lot better than I can. He's kind of considered the, the father of, of modern-day um, psychology, specifically dealing um, with suicide and depression. Uh, really did an amazing number on what was thought to be the general practices of psychology during his time. What's interesting is how he came about this knowledge. He came about this knowledge in World War II. Now, he, he initially started off early in the war, as, as a therapist, actually working in the camps, working with people that were depressed, that were suicidal. And uh, through this, got this revelation that there has to be more, that the circumstances of life should not determine whether suicide is permittable or not. He decided there had to be something greater than that. And as the war moved on, he was eventually moved to regular labor duties, where he continued his work, working with people, just his fellow um, camp mates, and uh, really working with them to try and help them work through their depression, making sure that they never get to that point of suicidal. He set up programs uh, that were suicide watch. Uh, eventually he was moved to Auschwitz and then another camp, Tur- Turkheim, uh, where he then was turned into slave labor, just hard, grueling, cracking rocks with a sledgehammer labor, where he continued his work. And he just kept telling himself, there has to be something greater than the circumstances that we are in. In 1945, he was liberated, but only his sister survived with him. His parents and his wife were all killed in camps. He truly had gone through what we, as modern-day people, could consider one of the most grueling, trialing, difficult circumstances on this planet. And you know what he came out with? He wrote this. We stumbled on in the darkness over big stones through large puddles along one road leading from the camp. The accompanying guards kept shouting at us and driving us with the butts of their rifles. Anyone with very sore feet supported himself on his neighbor's arm. Hardly a word was spoken. The icy wind did not encourage talk. Hiding his mouth behind his upturned collar, the man marching next to him whispered suddenly, If our wives could see us now, I hope that they're better off in their camps and don't know what is happening to us. That brought thoughts of my own wife to mind. And as we stumbled on for miles, slipping on icy spots, supporting each other time and again, dragging one another up and onward, nothing was said, but we both knew each of us was thinking of his wife. Occasionally I looked at the sky, where the stars were fading and the pink light of the morning was beginning to spread behind a dark bank of clouds. But my mind clung to my wife's image, imagining it with an uncanny acuteness. I heard her answering me, saw her smile, her frank and encouraging look. Real or not, her look was then more luminous than the sun, which was beginning to rise. A thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers. The truth that love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasp the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. 
I understood how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss. Be it only for a brief moment, in the contemplation of his beloved, in a position of utter desolation, when man cannot express himself in positive action, when his only achievement may consist in enduring his sufferings in the right way, an honorable way. In such a position, man can, through loving contemplation of the image he carries of his beloved, achieve fulfillment. For the first time in my life, I was able to understand the meaning of the words, the angels are lost in perpetual contemplation of infinite glory. That is powerful. Now, Victor, I don't know if he was a Christian. He was a Jew. Um, I don't know if God ever did get a hold of his heart or what happened. I don't know where he was with God. That's between him and God. But I'll tell you what, that to me right there sounds pretty darn much like God. And I don't know if God was working on him in that or what happened with his life. But to me, those words really spoke. In those circumstances, you can find truth and fulfillment. The truth is that life is love and is only found in love. Now, in his particular case, what he wrote about was him focusing on the image of his wife. And I think in our Christian context, what we would say is that really needs to be an image of Christ. And that when you are enduring, if you are fixed on Christ, you can endure anything. Anything. And we know that because in your relationship with Christ, Christ has already endured everything. He has done it. He has been there. He has felt the worst of the worst. His best friends turned on him. Society as a whole hating him. Being tortured. Being hung up on a cross. Being ridiculed. He has experienced that. And you know what? You could endure that as, as well in Christ. Because when you join with the Holy Spirit, when you have that relationship, you inherit that relationship that he had with his father that got him through those circumstances. You now possess that. A relationship with our creator. And you can endure, and you can, o- you can not only endure, but you can endure with joy, with hope. You can. So any excuse that you've been working through in your mind, I know I have, that excuse is no longer valid. It is not an excuse for you not to live your best Christian life every day. How can we endure? I think Victor summed it up pretty good. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Those two words there, uh, otherwise translated, can be the author and perfecter, author and finisher of our faith. Who, for the joy that was set before him, enduring the cross, despising shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God, considered him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You got no excuse. You're not even bleeding yet. Any of your parents ever said that to you? Ah, just rub it off. It's not even bleeding. Don't, don't even bring it to me if it's not bleeding. It's growing up in a, in a larger family. Um, I have six brothers and sisters, and there was kind of a hierarchy of care. And if you actually ended up to the point where you were receiving mom's care, it was because you were pretty hurt. Otherwise, there was plenty of other siblings that could be taking care of you in the meantime. And she's currently managing a million other things and trying to, you know, feed an army and shop for an army and do all of these things. So she, she was plenty busy. Not that she didn't love us, but um, it was definitely a family structure where my siblings pulled their own as well. And I can remember, man, if, if it wasn't pretty serious, I went and found one of my sisters or one of my brothers. Well, maybe not my brothers. That wouldn't have helped. They were usually the cause. So actually, one of my sisters... <laughs> And generally, they were my first line of defense, being number five out of the seven. 
Um, I, I, I was the baby for many, many years. And, uh, and my older sisters uh, were really kind of a line of defense for me. And if I got to the point with my mom where she was taking care of me, um, I, I knew that I was really in, in turmoil. Now, I, I don't necessarily think that God works in hierarchies like that. But I do think that we should look to the system that we have around us to take care of us. And unfortunately, we've ignored Christianity as being that system. We've ignored that. We've put that aside. I have some interesting statistics. Um, Coming from the Market Data Enterprise Market Report, which is kind of a big business that does market reports, um, the self-improvement market since 2005 has grown... Um, from $9.59 billion to $13.9 billion and is expected to increase another 24% in the next two years. This is self-help. These are books, diets, personal coaching, things like that. Whereas the other statistic coming from the IBIS, which kind of keeps track of all the Bible statistics, the Bible is on the downturn and actually over the last five years has lost 5% of the market, which doesn't seem like much, except when you're dealing with $106 billion, 5% is, or sorry, not 5%, 0.5%. When you're dealing with that much, it really is a pretty significant chunk of cash. And the other thing that's kind of depressing is if you take that and you look at the increase at which humanity is growing, the Bible is going like this, the number of people on earth is going like this, and the number of self-help is going like this we are becoming less and less dependent on Scripture as a society, as a world, and much more dependent on our own personal self-help, on reading books and having other people tell us how we should be living our lives. Now, I'm not anti-self-help. I think they have a place and a time. I've been guilty of reading a few myself. But I think they should never ever replace your physical relationship with Jesus Christ. And they should never, ever, ever be consulted before Scripture. And unfortunately, our world is going in the exact opposite direction. And I think that should be concerning to us. Because ultimately, once again, we cannot endure unless we are abiding. One of the things I love about that, that uh, verses 3 and 4 is those words authored and finished. Okay? Authored and finished. Or the founder and, and perfecter. Those, those both just have such good context in them. And when I did the word study on these words, I, I had a hard time deciphering which one would be the better fit because they really just, they all work. But I kind of decided that from my perspective, I think the, the idea of the author and the finisher of our faith really best says it. And the reason for that is because the author is somebody that actually creates and puts themselves into something. The author uses their creativity, their ideas, their thoughts, their very character, their very being, and puts it into a work. And I feel like that's exactly what God did in this particular case. He authored our salvation. And then he didn't just endure our salvation, he finished it. He put, he did what no other man can do and put an end cap on our faith and said it begins and it ends with me. I am the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. There is nothing else good other than me. He was able to do that. He is the author, the creator, and the finisher of our faith. His example, who for joy was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy there, literally translated, means delight. I think, I think joy for us is kind of watered down. We, joy, yay. It's not, not like that. It's delight. It's, it's a passionate enthusiasm about something. To delight in somebody. I, I have joy for people I meet that I work with and things like that. I have true delight for my son and my wife. Delight 
is something that we should not take lightly. To delight in those circumstances. It didn't say there that Jesus ignored his circumstances. It says he delighted in them. And then it doesn't say that he ignored his circumstances after that. It says that he despised them. He was actively against them. Jesus was not a passive man. I don't think we can say that Jesus was a passive man. He was very intentionally against things that were not truthful. And he was not afraid to tell anybody that. For he despised, despised the shame. Do you despise the shame? Or do you endure the shame? Maybe endure is not a good word. Do you go along with the shame? Or do you despise it? Do you strike out against it? Are you actively against the shame of our human condition? Do you actively persevere to be a joyful, hopeful, enduring Christian? Last but not least, Jesus took on what we would consider to be most of our biggest fears. Number one, fear. Right now, if a statistic was taken, statistics have been taken, what is the number one fear? Public speaking. Jesus stood in front of humanity and endured ridicule and shame. Our greatest fear as humanity, people judging us, people looking into our lives, seeing where we are transparent, seeing where we're broken and flawed. That's where we as humans struggle. And Jesus stood in front of everybody and bared it all. He absolutely took on the greatest fears of our time. Philippians 2, 5 and 8 You must have the same attitude that Christ had, though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Jesus didn't stand in front of humanity ridiculed in shame as a god. He stood in front of humanity ridiculed and shamed as a human, as one of us, fully God, fully man. Which means he had to deal with the same things that I would have had to deal with if I'd have been in his place. He had to endure those things. And it says here that he not only endured them, but he delighted in them. He was proactive against the shame and he endured with joy. Now, if that's not a standard set pretty high, I don't know what is. He didn't do this as God, and it's easy for us to put him in that place and say, well, he was God. He was God. He did this as a human. If we took you and put you in that place, you would go through the same thing he did. And how would you react? And I think that's where we need to engage God. Not on this lofty God place. It's great to have definitely some admiration for that, to exalt Him, to glorify Him, but I think there needs to be a balance and we need to see Him as a human, just like one of us. Put in a place where He has to deal with the same things we deal with and endure joyfully. To finish up here, J.I. Packer said this, suffering is a gift from God in all forms. (laughs) Good start, huh? We should be jealous of those that learn to love effectively by sacrificially giving what little they have. It is those that have much that should earn our pity for how difficult it is for them to know God's life-saving provision and by extension his love and enter the kingdom of heaven. We should be jealous of those that have much. Or sorry, vice versa. They should be jealous of us. 
That's what it meant. <laughs> Just to make my point. I did that on purpose. No. Um, but they should be jealous of us. They should be jealous of those of us that have to struggle. Do you proudly accept that race as somebody that has to struggle? Or do you wish you were one of them? Because if you truly believe scripture is true, you're wishing yourself a harder lot in life. You're wishing yourself more difficulty. Are you happy with where you are? A couple of questions to leave you with. Do you honestly believe that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him? And if you do, or maybe you don't know, a good question for you to ask yourself is do you want to be part of that regardless of the circumstance it puts you in? And if you say yes, but, then you don't really believe that. If there is a yes, but in your life, you're not there yet. I've got a lot of them in my life. I'm not there yet. In my heart, I want to be. I do. I think I really do. But in the way that I daily live my life, I know that I still have a lot of work to do. I know in my brain that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him. But in my heart, do I act as though I believe that? Do I put myself in harm's way? Do I sacrificially endure with joy because I know that it's going to come out well. What's your strategy? Man's way of self-help or God? How are you going to endure? In the end, you're left with one of two things. You can imagine this laying on your deathbed someday. And you can say one of two things from your kids. I have lived a happy, full life in Christ and I have enjoyed Him and I have glorified Him with my life and I would expect or want the same for you. Or you can say, I wish. I wish that I could have done it differently. At this point in time right now is where you make that decision. Are you going to live your life daily glorifying God? Or are you going to have a list of excuses later on to tell your kids, wait, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. No, no well, I couldn't really do that because of this and life just really didn't work out. And look, what I've, look what I've endured. No. You either glorified God with your life or you didn't. It isn't, it isn't a gray issue. It's a black and white issue. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.